Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, we talk with Joe Hegener, sub-advisor to the Simplify Opportunistic Income Exchange Traded Fund, about investing in credit, how he builds a credit-focused portfolio, and the techniques that help minimize risk when investing in the credit markets. We start out by talking about the basics of credit, but then we get into the overall credit environment and where he's seeing opportunities and how those are reflected in the investment strategy that he runs. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Astrozoa Capital's Joe Hegener. Joe, how are you? Thank you for joining us today. Doing great, thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, we're gonna have you on to discuss your style or your type of investing, specifically focused on credit investing. I think it's a it's an interesting area. It's an area we're mostly long only equity strategy. So this is always an area that I find interesting and learning about. And I know our audience does too. We'll sort of tackle it from, I think kind of like the top down and bottom up of the way that you construct these types of investment strategies and then kind of talk through also um, some of the unique stuff you're doing at the strategy level and kind of where this might fit into um, an investor's overall investment allocation. Um, so that's going to be the main thrust of the discussion. But we sort of like to start, you know, maybe with some just basic, what appear to be maybe some basic explanations and definitions. And so, you know, right out of the gate, like if you were describing credit investing to someone that doesn't know a lot about it, how would you go about doing that? Sure. Yeah. yeah thanks. So, um, you know, at, at a really high level, right, you've, you've got sort of a various securities in different components of the capital structure for any real, for any business, whether it be public or private, right? That you have got in an order of seniority down to equity, you have first lien, senior secured debt, then you have maybe second lien secured debt. Then typically there's a chunk of me mezzanine or what would be called unsecured debt. And then after that is the equity. There's preferred shares, sometimes in a large cap business, and then the common stock at, at, at the end, right? And so um, the credit investing that we're doing in, in particular is we're taking a look at the full spectrum of securities across the capital stack and kind of comparing the pricing on maybe on a relative basis, you know, is the second lien note very inexpensive relative to the unsecured debt or the equity even? Um, or maybe is it just the most robust risk return profile to take a look at the first lien senior secured bond in this in this stage of, you know, where we are macroeconomically or, you know, whatever it might be. And we'll just be happy to own that security with the yield to maturity of of X, right? But it's it predominantly fixed income investing and we're looking across the capital stack of a particular business to try to find value. And then um, to take it a step further, even maybe try to create a relative value proposition where we're being thoughtful about the risk we're taking, the downside scenario, as well as trying to keep as much blue ocean on the upside as, as possible. And I'm just curious, where do you go to source that type of information? Is that like on Bloomberg or something or what? where, where is that? Yeah. Yeah. So Bloomberg obviously is kind of the, the standard or the go-to. So, you know, we all have the Bloomberg subscriptions over, over here. And, um, th for the most part, 
the securities that we're talking about are are very liquid. They're publicly traded. There's a lot of public data available. Um, okay. the, you know, the fixed income market is is incredibly deep, e- e- even relative to uh, you know the equity market in terms of the number of securities that are available, which I guess we could talk about later. But you know, s- some there's some interesting kind of arbitrage relative value opportunities within the fixed income universe in the securities that are not necessarily included in a passive index. Um, so, you know, you have like an HYG or an LQD, LQD, for example, which would be kind of a passive fixed income vehicle with a ton of securities inside of it. Um, however, that's a very small section of the actual number of publicly traded bonds that are outstanding in the universe. The universe is much, much larger than that. And so I'm just, uh, we're just kind of zooming out, taking a look. Go ahead. I'm just curious on the on the passive index thing. You know, there's this people. One of the things people say about fixed income is that it's it's not like equities in that most equity managers underperform the benchmark, and, and people kind of say in fixed income the indexes aren't constructed as well, so it's easier to outperform them. Is that true? I believe so. You know, and, and there's a, a there's a couple of reasons for that, and actually, um, you know, a, a kind of a partner of ours is you know Simplify ETS, and one of the chief strategists there, um, you know, Mike Green. He's actually done a lot of homework on the trade-offs between, you know, active and passive and structurally what that's doing to the marketplace. And so if you have a, if you have a passive equity index, there's, a, there's, you know, smart arguments to be made on both sides, if that's a good or a bad thing for the market. Um, however, it does absolutely, you know, every dollar that's taken out of active and deployed into passive for um, an equity index, right? You're kind of disproportionately plowing those dollars into the top market cap weighted names. And that, tends to lead towards, uh, you know, valuations going higher and higher. Um, but there's an asymptote within the fixed income u- universe, right? You, you know, Apple could trade at 15 times earnings, then 25 times earnings, then 35 times earnings. But a uh, high yield or an investment grade bond doesn't have that same linear trajectory with every incremental dollar that's bidding on the bond, so to speak, right? There's a, there's a, there's a constraint with regards to how high the price of that note can go. Um, you know, barring crazy, exceptional, like European central bank QE, where bonds were actually negative, right? Mm-hmm. The high yield bond typically can't yield less than risk-free rates, for example, or, or whatever that asymptote might be. So every dollar that's deployed into these passive high yield vehicles, in, in my opinion, is kind of disproportionately bidding on or providing a permanent bid rather for the most heavily indebted issuers that are in the universe, right? Because these passive indices are, it's kind of a misnomer, but I think it gets the point across similar to an equity benchmark. uh, It's kind of market cap weighted, if you will, right? So you naturally have this negative adverse selection that takes place within the passive vehicle itself, where the most heavily indebted issuers tend to be the most concentrated positions within the benchmark. And that's kind of the opposite of what you would want, right? You don't want dish networks with an insane <laughs> amount of debt and it's losing, losing market share every year, a legacy technology, you know, they're going to have to restructure that debt at some point, And yet it might be 3% of the index. And there's a lot of these names that are sort of the top concentrations of issuer exposure within these passive vehicles. And so that uh, adverse selection bias is something that we try to take advantage of. We'll, we'll kind of zoom out and we'll look at credits that we actually quite like that might not be, you know, that kind of cookie cutter fit within the index. 
And then we might even look to hedge out some of the beta risk by, by having uh, put protection or credit default swap protection on the names that we don't like uh, within that same index. So we're kind of removing the edge, taking the edge off a little bit and then trying to be net long the names that we actually do like on a, from a balance sheet and a fundamental standpoint. Jack, we have to uh, maybe take that idea and create a uh, short ETS that goes short those names and see if we can product yeah, within our fund. Um, we own uh, puts on the common stock of those, okay. those names. Um, and we specifically chose, so we've got Carnival Cruise, Carvana, Caesars Palace, mm-hmm. Delta, American Airlines, Western Digital, um, and, and there's a few others that we're looking at too. All of those names are very, very large on a relative basis, large uh, exposures within HYG and um, are very highly correlated to the performance of HYG. And so we s- selected those for kind of two reasons, right? Very high correlation to HYG and, and S&P. So when markets kind of broadly sell off, that's a nice hedge for us anyway. And then specifically, when you look at the, the underlying fundamentals of those businesses, in my opinion, all, all of those names are going to have to restructure their debt at some point. And um, in the, the equity in that situation is, is more often than not going to go to zero. It's just a matter of when that takes place effectively. So it's, it's kind of twofold in that hedging component, I suppose. You had mentioned a couple of those core categories like investment grade, high yield, and then you have distressed debt, but can you just kind of talk to those broadly and, and you know, what types of credit would be yeah. in each one? Yeah, yeah, f- absolutely. So, I mean, at, at a high, uh, you know, from a high viewpoint or, you know, at a high level, um, you have ratings agencies, right? S&P, Fitch, Moody's, it's a lot of others, Kroll and, and DBRS. Um, and their whole business model, right, is to kind of, create a scalable framework to evaluate the relative creditworthiness or safety of, of an issue, right? And so you know, they'll issue AAA all the way down to, you know, single C uh, ratings. And it's, it's fairly, fairly cookie cutter. I mean, there's tens of thousands of bonds that are outstanding in, in the universe that's available to choose from. And uh, they do a really good job, honestly, of, of, issuing a rating for the vast majority of the bonds that are outstanding. However, it's, it's not, I mean, it's just impossible to take a very minute, you know, very detailed view of every single issuance that's out there and, and have a, like a true kind of fundamental rating for that. Right. So it's, it's kind of a, at a high level, they're saying, all right, like what's the debt to equity or what's the leverage ratio? You know, are their earnings going up or, or down in very high level checks? And as long as they pass all the checks, then you'll, you'll, you'll get a rating for that bond, right? And so investment grade would be triple A to triple B. Below triple B would be high yield debt. And then distressed debt is typically something like a turnaround. You know, it's a maybe heavily indebted business mm-hmm. and they got hit really hard during COVID and they're, they're trying to recover or bounce back. And so typically a, a distressed, there's not a really a hard definition of this, but it, if the bonds are trading for 50, 60, 70 cents on the dollar, that's, that might be considered a distressed uh, scenario. And so what we're trying to do is kind of do our own evaluation with regards to what is the credit worthiness of this particular issuance or this, this issuer and 
what's the relative pricing? Am I actually being properly compensated by taking the risk here? Or, you know, or is it the other way around? You know, I would argue that those top names within HYG, like Dish Networks, for example, it's like an eight or a 9% yield on those bonds. I don't think that's an adequate level of compensation for the risk that the potential restructuring that I think inevitably will take place. However, if you kind of zoom out and you look at some of these other high yield issuances that aren't as well bid by these passive vehicles, you're looking at 12, 15, 18% yields to maturities with very similar risk profiles. And so by being long those, and then maybe hedging out some of that tail risk, um, yeah, I think that's, that's the proposition we're trying to create or the value prop we're trying to create. Um, you know, personally, the investment grade universe right now, I, I don't think is super attractive because of kind of where we are on a macroeconomic basis, right? High yield investment grade spreads are very, very thin relative to where we are in the economic cycle. I think part of that actually is a function of the dollars that have been poured into passive fixed income investing, creating that permanent bid completely indiscriminately with regards to the state of the balance sheet, right? It's, it's just pro rata. Every dollar that goes into the vehicle gets deployed into these issuers according to these rules. And there isn't really any discretion, you know, that's taking place with regards to maybe I shouldn't own that Carvana bond, or maybe I shouldn't own that dish bond. It's interesting because what you're talking about plays, you know, we've had Mike Green on the podcast and it, it plays in a lot into what he's talks about with the equity market. You know, these, these forced flows that are going into certain things and they create distortions. You know, it's, it's interesting to see that it happens in the bond market as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, you know, the equity market is, is boy, that's, it's really a challenging one because it kind of mentioned before there's that, there's that age old kind of adage, right? The, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. And, right. and, and the equity market is inherently volatile. There's a, there's an enormous amount mm -hmm. of psychology that, that plays into near-term pricing and, you know, and in the short term, right, it's a voting machine, long term, it's a waiting machine, all of, all of that. Right. But within the fixed income universe, it's a, it's a little bit more uh, predictable, which is why I like it. You can actually structure trades and and leave them on and not have these crazy kind of mark to market swings so to speak and kind of rely on that 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 fixed income over a certain period of time you know, so as long as we're being thoughtful about our hedging and and what's the downside here i i yeah i i, de I definitely think that that provides us a little bit of an edge can you talk about how you look at the overall credit market right now? I know like those of us that are equity investors, you know, we might look at the PE ratio, we might look at earnings growth and we have an opinion sort of on what the overall market looks like. I mean, do you have similar stuff you look at in the credit market to say like what I think of the overall credit market relative to history? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, at overall, you know, and, and the, there's a very big gap in, in my opinion between where like CDX would be or where investment grade or high yield spreads would trade currently and where some of the more off the run securities are currently priced in, in trading, right? So we're talking about hundreds of basis points of differential in yield for very similar risk profiles. It's, it's so, you know, part of that is because there's just been a complete lack of issuance in, in uh, high yield in particular this year. And so there's not really an opportunity for some of these instruments to reset at, at kind of higher levels. And, and Mike Green's, you know, noted that uh, a lot this year, actually, is the, the duration of HYG is getting shorter and shorter and shorter as companies are kind of holding out 
waiting for rates to go back down so then they can mm. refinance. They're 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 getting near the end of their rope, but they're but they have a little bit of runway left and they're holding out, kind of waiting for a more ideal opportunity to refinance their their debt. Um, so maybe they get that opportunity. Maybe maybe you know it's a higher for longer type situation. But you know, in in my opinion, we are nowhere near the end of the lag effect to, to monetary policy, right? I mean, historically, monetary policy changes takes about two years or so for the full economic effect of, of a policy tweak or change to be felt, um, you, know, you know, within the macro, you know, economic landscape. And we're, we're not two years in at all, right? We're nearing the end of the tightening cycle, but the first rate hike was, was what, March of last year? It was not even two years ago. And so you combine that with the fact that prior to the hiking cycle, you had this truly unique period of time where rates were zero. Just about anybody, whether it be a household balance sheet or a corporate balance sheet, had the opportunity to lock in incredibly cheap financing for a very long time, right? Whether you're a mortgage owner or if you were a high yield, even a zombie company that just was surviving off of leveraged loans. You, you were able to lock in very cheap, longer duration financing. And so I think one of the things that I personally underestimated going into this year was how powerful it is and how long of a runway uh, was created during that period of time, that you know, period of excess, frankly. And so I do think the lag effect is going to be longer in this tightening cycle than in prior tightening cycles, because there's all sorts of, whether it be a startup in venture capital land or a commercial real estate project or uh, investment grade uh, corporate credit, right? All At some point, that debt needs to be refinanced, but it, it's been pushed out pretty far into the future. So we're starting to get to the place where some of the higher risk investments like CRE you know, those are short-term loans. And so that's why we're seeing tons of stress. That's part of one of the reasons why we're seeing tons of stress in that environment right now is because th those loans need to be rolled over very quickly. And so we're already facing refinancing issues. But if you look at like a Verizon, for example, um, you know, Mike uh, pointed out this is, as well in a, in a recent blog post, right? Verizon's got 30 something billion dollars worth of debt that's come due in the next five years, right? The average cost of that debt and a hundred, actually, I'm on Bloomberg now. I'll pull up the exact number. But uh, the average cost of that debt is 2.6%, right? So when they roll that maturity into the new rate environment, the cost of servicing that debt is going to go up substantially, right? So Verizon is a, Verizon's $172 billion worth of debt, of which 35 is coming to you in the next five years. Okay, they've got about $17 billion in free cash flow estimated for this year, right? So if, if the cost of that $35 billion worth of debt goes from 2.6 to six and a half, that's going to eviscerate your free cash flow profile, right? And, and, and Verizon's an investment grade issuer, right? It's, we're not even talking about some distressed or high yield corporate credit, right? So I do think there's going to be some serious stress in the next 12 months or so, 12 to 18 months as these maturities are come due. There's kind of a, there's been a lot of chatter about a maturity wall 
2024 and 2025 as it relates to lots of high yield debt that's coming due in that period of time. And when that gets refinanced at uh, the, the new going rate, right, whether it be, you know, treasuries plus, you know, 300, call it, that will be a really big burden on balance sheets that's going to eat into earnings and free cash flow profile and the sustainability of the business model and balance sheet itself will be called into question for a lot of issuers. You got into the question I wanted to ask next, which is this whole idea of, uh, you know, we probably could have a segment of the podcast called Should Jack Be Panicked? Um, and what, what, you've been, <laughs> what you've been talking about is something that's been in the news a lot. You know, you talked about Mike with the duration of HYG being short. You know, we've got a lot of refinancing come up, coming up. Like, do you see that as like a major, major risk to the market overall as we move into 2024, 25? Or is this a matter of like, if rates don't come back down by then, if we don't have something that brings rates back down, we've got a huge issue on our hands? Yeah, you know, I, I'd probably stop short in saying that the sky is going to fall or anything like that. I, you know, I, I do think that while there's going to be a pretty bad hangover uh, with regards to all the excessive amount of borrowing that took place and the excessive amount of spending that took place over the last handful of years, um, you know, I don't, at the same time, there's, there has been hundreds of billions of dollars raised in private equity funds and lending funds. And there, there's so much cash sitting on the sidelines right now. We have kind of positioning for, for the doomsday scenario where all of a sudden there's all these great loans and credit opportunities out there that are super inexpensive. That typically, you know, when, when hundreds of billions of dollars are being raised and sitting in dry powder, being ready, kind of waiting in the wings, ready to deploy, I think that offsets a lot of, you know, potential real existential risk to some capacity. Um, and then the other thing I, I guess I would say is the, the, just because the, there will be losses like bondholder and, and certainly equity holder losses. I, mean, I don't think that necessarily creates like a systemic, you know, macroeconomic death spiral or, or anything along those lines. Right. I just, I generally just. And looking at high yield and distressed balance sheets and the, the, the disconnects, I think, between the investment grade kind of very well bid names and the lesser known names that are all in the high teens, low 20s in terms of a yield to maturity, that valuation gap or that disconnect has, has never been wider, in my opinion, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of how we're position, frankly, is we, we want to be short the names that are kind of asymmetric to the downside and long the names that are asymmetric to the upside and hopefully have kind of a net neutral approach to taking on market beta. Because, you know, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if the S&P 500 rallied for the next three to four months. And I wouldn't be shocked if it sold off 20% either. And so, you know, and thankfully, I don't have to make that call as a, as a fund manager, right? We're, all we're trying to do is position our exposures to be as optimal as possible from a risk return standpoint. And the opportunity out there, it's, it's there, right? We're able to construct these types of profiles for the first time in a long time. Uh, you know, when I was, I, I started my career on the institutional side of the business, uh, you know, I was at BlackRock in the advisory uh you know, division, not asset management. And one of the strategies we, we employed there uh, was this, this concept of like a barbell 
approach to portfolio management. You know, back then rates were zero and, and you had underfunded pension funds and all of these, uh, you know, institutions that were hiring us, you know, how, how do we, what do we do? You know, effectively we need, we didn't make 7% and we, last year we made one and a half or something along those lines. Right. And so that barbell approach was still kind of optimal in those, you know, 10 years ago, call it, but now we're actually getting paid quite handsomely to, to be in cash, to be on one side of this barbell. And then we're also getting paid very handsomely to be on the other end, to lean into some of the cuspier credits. And so when you kind of blend those two barbells together, what you get is a much more optimal risk return exposure than being just a hundred percent fully invested in core fixed income, right? Your volatility profile is much more manageable. You have lots of optionality with regards to your cash position. Um, as markets sell off, you can maybe decide to lean into that and pick up additional exposures. And then the, because you're leaning in on this side, the riskier side of the barbell, your blended portfolio yield is still comparable and your upside is still comparable to that, that fully invested fixed income, uh, you know, fund effectively. So that's kind of the way we're, we're thinking about it, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's good. It's good to see there's some opportunities and, you know, you think there's going to be pain, but it's not going to be a catastrophe. I can, I can hold off on building the bunker in my backyard for now, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Uh, I want to ask you about your process uh, that, that leads to where you just what you just talked about. But first, I just want to ask you a couple of things about the macro environment. Um, we, we we pride ourselves on digging deep into your uh, LinkedIn and stuff when we have people on. And, and I saw this quote that I thought was really cool on your on your LinkedIn from a while back. And it was you said the importance of bifurcating between the cyclical and the secular horizon is a staple in macro analysis. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that, and then we'll talk about macro a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. So that's that's um a big one at at Pimco. So after I was at BlackRock, I worked at Pimco for a couple of years. And that's, that's a big part of their macroeconomic analysis. And that, you know, it's a macro shop, obviously. Right. Um, and so the, you know, definitionally, right. The secular horizon, so to speak, would be, you know, what are the, the existing structural long-term trends that are taking place? You know, whether that be the adoption of cybersecurity or maybe renewable energy, you know, themes effectively that are going to take place regardless of what happens next month or regardless of who's in office or, or whatever it might be. Right. And, and then you've got the, the cyclical horizon, which is short-term oriented and, you know, and more volatile effectively. And that's something like, you know, energy fluctuations, um, you know, regulatory issues, something along those lines, kind of near-term catalysts that will create market volatility. Right. And so you think about like the secular horizon, you know, it's kind of slow, a slow wave, either going up or, or down. And, you know, in the case of, you know, kind of legacy technologies and then on layered on top of that slow wave, you've got the cyclical that's much more, um, more, much more volatile. And so what I typically like to do, or what we typically try to do is try to isolate an opportunity where the secular horizon is very bright and, and we're near a nadir on the cyclical horizon, right? So, uh, you know, an example would be, maybe this isn't a perfect example, but I think a good, decent example is in 2020, um, we were in the, in the middle of 2020, we were really interested in energy, right? So this, that was a place where cyclically you were at just an all time low, right? You, 
Oil futures were negative $47 a barrel. There was just tons of distress. They were shutting down oil wells and rigs across the country. And, and then if you just kind of zoomed out secularly, there was a lot of uncertainty with regards to lockdowns and what the oil, you know, energy demand would look like. But we had, we, we knew that if you shut down a rig, it takes 12 to 18 months to start that back up again. It doesn't, it's not like a light switch. You can't just, you know, turn that on and all of a sudden it starts, you know, producing. And, and so after they shut down pretty much every rig in, in the country, we, you know, we, we sort of postulated that we, you, there didn't really need to be this huge surge in demand the way that we saw in terms of kind of the, 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 you know, increase in, in energy demand post, post lockdown, all you really needed because of structurally, there'd be such a constraint on supply was a very, very modest recovery in order for that sector to be very well bid on it and have a really nice kind of cyclical tailwind, um, over, over call it six to 12 months. And that was kind of where we started, you know, macroeconomically. And then, you know, if you zoomed out, you know, secularly, I am, I am quite optimistic about renewable energy, but we're also somewhat realistic in, in that we, we thought that, you know, the energy business would be doing just fine in, in five, 10 years time in this back in 2020. Right. And so that's really the first step of our process. And I think we're, you're starting to get in, into that, uh, the first step really is, is the macro analysis, you know, kind of zooming out and what sectors look really interesting, like right now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a contrarian approach, uh, although usually it is. And then from there, we'll kind of dig further into that sector and try to look for value and asymmetric value. So that would be like the, the next step of the process, the quantitative component where, you know, whether it be a fulcrum security, like a second lien secured bond in, in, in a restructuring scenario, like a Chesapeake energy, that was a big one for us in 2020, um, or maybe just a first lien secured note that's 15% yield to maturity. Um, you know, those types of opportunities are, are really kind of compelling to us. And then, you know, the quantitative lens is, is somewhat unique to the way that we run things and kind of, it's a homage to the the analytics uh, experience that I had when I first started out in the risk modeling group, group at, at BlackRock is, you know, what we're trying to do is be as thoughtful as we possibly can about the worst case scenario of a particular trade or investment strategy. And to the extent that we can mitigate or reduce the left tail and still keep as much positive convexity to the upside as possible, like that's really what we're trying to solve for, right? There's a lot of there are a lot of investment strategies that are successful, but they're very negatively convex. And, and what I mean by that is you're, you know, you're picking up pennies in front of the proverbial steamroller, right? I mean, you might be clipping, you know, at, you know, the, the inverse VIX is the most notorious example, right? That one, the and then the, that, uh, that ETF exploded in one day after, uh, you know, 50% spike in the VIX. So what we're trying to do is kind of quite the opposite, right? We're trying to create the most positive convex uh, profile as we possibly can. And if we can do that from like a quantitative lens, that's where we move on. And that's when the real homework starts, the fundamental analysis is this, you know, what does the balance sheet of this business actually look like? Uh, you know, what, do we like the management team? What does the industry peer group look like? Are there relative value opportunities? What does the capital structure look like? Uh, you know, things like that. And that's the, probably the most intensive component of the process. 
but it needs to kind of pass the first two checks in order for us to get to that stage, uh, you know, really. And, and once the, the math of the trade is less convex than we'd like, then we typically look to unwind that. So, you know, I'll give you an example, the puts that we own, right? We don't own these things because we want to be short Caesar's palace, right? We, we own them as hedges in, in the portfolio and they have a specific role to play. And they, at the, when we, at the time we bought them, they were 10% out of the money because that's kind of the nice, you know, positively convex kind of cusp where you're, you're getting the most incremental value if the stock does sell off. But as you probably know, right, once the uh, underlying goes through the money, through the expiry, then all of a sudden you've got a very negatively convex exposure. You got more downside than up for every for every uh, delta adjusted basis, like the underlying moving every one percent. And so, when we bought these those puts, they were all ten percent out of the money. For you know, for whatever reason, you can call it uh, you know luck, but all of those puts almost instantly became in the money within like five days. And that's just it was just you know time. That's we didn't intend to be short the names; it just happened. And so. As soon as they kind of hit that at the money status, that's something that we would look to harvest that gain and then roll into another 10% out of the money position because we want to, we want to maintain that convexity profile. And, and so, you know, that's, I guess, a, a small example, but it's effectively what we're trying to do. Yeah, go, going back to the macroeconomic stuff, how much do you care about, like going a level above the sectors, how much do you care about, you know, we, we're on Twitter all the time. I don't know if you are, but. You know, right now you've got your higher for longer guys, you got your recession guys, there's all kinds of debate going on. Like, how much does that matter to you in constructing your portfolio, like having an opinion on stuff like that? Yeah, um, it certainly matters. Um, you know, what, what I would say, and this is, hopefully this isn't too much of a cop out, but what, what I would say is uh, what we're trying to do is create exposures in a portfolio strategy that is, that's successful in in both of those kind of binary outcomes, right? If if we are in the higher for longer camp, then there are all sorts of implied effects to that, right? And we want to be thoughtful about what those scenarios look like. And at the same time, you know, if something does break, you could see a situation where the overnight rate gets cut by 100 basis points very, very quickly. And, wh and what do those scenarios look like? And and, you know, defining the, the scenarios is a, is a pretty integral component of our, of our process. There's the concept called expected value, where it's, you're effectively signing, assigning probabilistic weights to various scenarios, right? So like a very simple example is just say like a binary outcome, right? you know, either uh, rates go up hundred basis points or down hundred basis points, right? Um, and it's a 50-50 yeah, you, know, you know, probability in terms of, and then let's say in the up scenario, you, you make a dollar and in the down scenario, you lose a dollar, right? Well, 50% times plus one, 50% times minus one, that nets out to an expected value of zero, right? Um, so if you actually create, call it three, four, 10, 12 scenarios, and you kind of and you, and you rely on correlation matrices and, you know, implied parametric exposures and things like that. 
um, you can you can have a decent idea of what your portfolio might look like in each of these scenarios. Like, let's say rates are cut by 100 basis points, and then you, you, know, you use correlation to effectively imply what your universe of exposures might look like in that scenario. Or the S&P is down 15% in a month, or, or maybe it's up 15% in a month. Um, the, the, the difficult part, the, the, the where it becomes more of an art than a science, is applying the probability, the probabilistic weights to each of these scenarios. And, and that's, you know, kind of any, anybody's guess. And that's what we spend the most time trying to think about, you know, macroeconomically. I'm personally in the camp that, you know, rates are going to stay elevated for a, you know, a longer period of time than what's priced in. You know, even now there are a handful of cuts that are priced in by call it June or, or September of, of 24. I think in order to get cuts, something's going to have to break. And I don't, I don't, I hope that doesn't happen because <laughs> that, that we, we'd have some serious bigger fish to fry if something that bad does take place. But I think something really severe will have to take place in order to get the Fed to budge on their policy. You know, Powell has said time and time again that they would rather err on the side of being too restrictive because if we do slip into a recession, they've got the tools to take care of that, right? They can always just, you know, ease conditions again and, and go down that road. Whereas the risk of them not taming inflation is so great in their eyes that I, I do think they're going to kind of err on that side of caution. And that to me was the most worrying thing as you know, we talked about before all these refinancings that are, that are coming due in the next 18 months, the market was pricing in. And the reason that I think equities were doing so well is the, the market was pricing in at the time, a hundred basis points of cuts between now and December of next year. And, and so sure, you know, if, if, if we did get lower rates, that would ease a lot of the stress within the financing picture of the market and that maybe does justify an equity rally. But if, if rates stay at five plus percent and I'm, you know, I'm coming to the market with my new high yield or investment grade bond, in, bond issuance, it's going to have to be risk-free plus 200 basis points. And that cost of debt is, is not being appreciated, you know, right now. I, I, I really don't think that in particular, the equity market is paying any attention to these, these debt maturities and what it's going to do to the earnings profile of some of these businesses. I mean, we're talking about the potential for the entirety of free cash flow generation to be allocated to debt service, you know, to, to debt interest services effectively. And, you know, what does that do to price earnings, right? If, if there are, if there are, if there's no free cash flow and, and all that. So I do think we're in for a rude awakening over the next 12 months. But on you know, the flip side of that coin is that there's, there's also an enormous amount of opportunity. There's, there are, you know, there's a lot of stress out there. And for the first time in a long time, you can underwrite credits yielding 15 to 20 plus percent. Yeah. And on the higher for longer thing, one of the things I've learned this year is, you know, it's not just about what's going on in the economy and inflation. It's also just a supply and demand issuance type thing. You know, one of the things I learned in the wake of the debt ceiling with the TGA and everything is, you know, the government is issuing a lot of debt right now. Um, and, and, you know, that, that I assume is playing a significant role in what's going on in terms of rates going up. 
and also just how important it is in terms of the duration they issue. You know, the, the more they're issuing out the duration curve, it, it ends up being a huge issue for the equity market. Um, the, the more they issue bills, it's better. So that, that, that's something I've learned this year too in, in relation to that whole higher for longer thing. Oh, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, the, the fiscal deficit, the fiscal spending situation is is pretty is really concerning honestly i mean right is that you know stan Druckenmiller has been kind of shouting uh from the mountaintop for the last year or so you know but you know his estimation i think it was something like 30 percent or something like that of u.s gdp is going to be have is going to have to be allocated to just servicing our debt in, in not too long of a period of time in, in just a couple of years from now and he, he had some pretty ominous projections and it wasn't like he was reaching right he was really just extrapolating the existing scenario um the 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 long end going up as fast as it did in the last month or so was was an interesting phenomenon um you know i i part of me thinks that it can be attributed to the fact that our fiscal situation is pretty dire um i think a, a lot of it also is is just fun positioning uh it was a it was a really crowded it is a really crowded trade in terms of um there's like a basis trade that, that takes place and then um and then just just kind of net being short yet a lot of hedge fund and cta exposures that were just net short the, the long end of of the curve so i do think you know back to that like cyclical secular you know analogy that maybe cyclically the long end is is probably a buy in, in my opinion at, at the same time over a longer period of time especially if we start to get some more kind of public chatter about the sustainability of our debt um you know I, I, you could probably see a situation where where it continues to back up the the other point i guess i would make there is it's a it's a bad scenario fiscally but relative to everybody else it's, just, it's still pretty good yeah. Um, you know, I've got a really, I've got a really, uh, admittedly negative bias against the Eurozone and peripheral Europe. Um, you know, one of the cooler projects I got to kind of view from afar when I was at BlackRock was the, the financial markets advisory team was hired during the European debt crisis, uh, by the ECB and the central bank of Greece, um, to try to figure out and get the house, you know, house back in order. And, you know, the, the entire point of zero interest rate policy in the Eurozone was to give these peripheral countries breathing room to enact reform, right? To get the house in order and to actually generate tax revenue and, and collect it, which, you know, hardly anybody pays taxes in certain, you know, certain countries. Um, and it, it never took place, right? That reform never, never happened. You know, arguably the, those countries' fiscal balance sheets are worse now than they were in 2012 and 2013. And for the first time in a very long time, interest rates are going the wrong direction. And Germany is not going to be bailing anybody out this time. Right. And so I, I do think that provides us with, uh, you know, interesting opportunity on a, on a relative value basis. Right. So, if, you know, maybe the long end of the U.S. curve continues its march higher. But I like I like that trade. I like being long the 30-year treasury much, much better than I like being long the 10-year Italian bond at four and a half. And so uh, by being short Italian rates, 
and maybe long the U.S. rates, it's kind of hedging us against, you know, continued March higher because for every 100 basis points that interest rates very broadly in terms of the benchmarks go up, whether it be the Bund or in U.S. Treasuries, I think disproportionately you'll get a lift off with you know, with regards to those peripheral countries. And and it also provides us some air cover to, to start to tiptoe in and extend duration and on the U.S. side of things and start to get long. Just two more for me before I hand it back to Justin. I would ask about the stuff you talked about with your process earlier. You know, having a quantitative and a fundamental process, you know, two parts of it made me think a lot about what we deal with on the equity side because we're quantitative investors, but there's a lot of debate around, you know, what are the best things for quantitative strategies to do in the equity market and what are the best things for discretionary strategies to do? And I'm just wondering, how do you think about that in fixed income? Like, what are the best things you can use quantitative analysis for and where are the best places you use discretionary analysis? Interesting. Um, yeah, so you qu quantitatively, you know, we're not, you know, Ec, you know, equities is obviously is really quite, quite different. You know, you, you might be looking at, you know, you know, quantitative equity strategy, you might be looking at stuff like momentum, um, you know, all, in all sorts of other kind of, you know, risk factors that would be driving, you know, risk and return. But, you know, when, when I think about using quantitative metrics uh, to, you know, in, in, in the application of fixed income in, in credit investing, I think it's, it's more idiosyncratic. It's more specific to the trade itself. Um, you know, I mentioned that concept of expected value and scenario analysis, um, that, that quantitative component of the underwriting process is, is, is really, really important for us to, you know, how do we rigorously define what the worst case scenario of this trade looks like and how can we structure a investment thesis around that scenario? and create an optimal risk return profile where, you know, you're never going to eliminate risk perfectly. Like that just never going to happen. Right. But how, how are we being thoughtful about the risks we're taking while still trying to, you know, maintain some upside effectively? So there's, you know, you're looking at pricing effectively of securities across the capital structure, obviously. And then you're using either like a parametric return model or in, you know, various correlation matrices, um, the kind of the interesting thing I think about, you, you know, you definitely don't want to take it as gospel, but it, it's very helpful in the underwriting process, right? I mean, um, we used to, we, we, when I was at the, the advisory side of things, we would have chief risk officers and stuff kind of send us their portfolio, right? All, all of the underlying holdings across all of their managers, and we'd load it up into that Aladdin system and and run a uh, you know risk on on what the portfolio looks like and um, and these risk officers would would go to the group and say all right well what's what's my risk and we'd kind of laugh and say well what do you want it to be we, you know because it totally depends on what the assumptions you're making are right I mean are you using a correlation matrix from the last six months or are you using a correlation matrix from 2009 or from you know the European debt crisis because when when it hits the fan right correlations get really wonky and they tend to spike and get and get positively correlated and so what we we typically like to do in that quantitative from that quantitative lens is to kind of pick out slices and periods of time that might rhyme with what the future looks like and then take a look at that those matrices 
and overlaid and and and, and kind of shock our portfolio relative to to those 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 correlation matrices, if if that makes any sense, and and try to just try to be thoughtful about like what the future looks like, and then can we construct something that is robust enough to weather the the potential storm, and yet still generates a solid return and ideally outperforms its benchmark, et cetera. I'm just curious for my last question. When you, when you look at a company and you're evaluating its debt, like if we're, you mentioned Verizon, uh, we could use that as an example. Like if you're evaluating Verizon relative to the way I'm evaluating Verizon as an equity manager, if I want to dig in there and figure out whether I should invest, what are sort of the important differences in terms of the, the things you're looking at on a balance sheet or the types of things you're looking at that maybe an equity investor wouldn't be looking at? Yeah, man. So, um, so it's, it's honest, I think it's a little easier as a fixed income investor than, than equity because, you know, there, the real question for a credit investor, particularly if you're buying a bond that's unsecured, the, the primary question is, are these guys going to be able to pay their debt? Are they going to pay the, be able to pay the coupon and are they going to be able to, you know, pay the principal back when it's due? And, um, and there's a lot of businesses right now where that's actually very questionable. Um, but the things that we're actually looking at, right, is it's similar stuff to maybe equity, but it's the, the state of the balance sheet. You know, um, what's their liquidity profile look like? Are they gaining market share? You know, what's their cost footprint? Do they have operating le leverage? Are they able to scale their cost footprint up and down to, to effectively um, size themselves appropriately relative to their new revenue? footprint or the new re revenue structure, right? So there were a lot of businesses that experienced gangbuster years in 2021 and in early 2022, especially retail, because um, of all the stimulus and everything like that, where their revenue was through the roof and they had this huge growth in, in that top line revenue profile. But they, but what goes along with that, right, is they scaled their, their cost footprint up too. A lot of these have kind of, you know, variable cost, uh, you know, business profiles. And so now we're in a place where earnings and revenue, they're starting to normalize, right? And so now you've got year over year, maybe a 20% drop in, in revenue. They're exactly where they were in 2018, 2019, but year over year, it's 20% drop. The cost footprint, that doesn't happen overnight, right? You can't just, you know, lay off a bunch of people like that or, you know, renegotiate your leases or, or whatever it might be, right? So what's the operating leverage of this business and are they going to be able to adjust to this new environment relatively quickly? So that's, that's a big one for us, especially on the distress side of things where the market might see a negative earnings report and say, oh my goodness, you know, down top lines down 20%, you know, negative free cash flow for the quarter. And that might look really dire and might create a big sell-off. It, and then that would give us an opportunity to go in there and say, hey, wait, wait a second. You know, they management has already said that they're addressing problems X, Y, and Z, and they just need a couple of quarters to readjust their their expense side of the balance sheet, or excuse me, the income statement. And um, and so those types of things, do we believe management's actually going to be able to enforce, you know, enforce that that rescale of, of the cost structure? That's a big one right now, um, and potentially. Could, could be, you know, a, a decent opportunity for us. Uh, other things just, you know, do you, do you believe in the management team? And then actually a, a really big one, especially these days is who owns, who owns what, 
um, you know, where are the incentives for the business, right? So the most notorious example, I think, would be Carvana, where the, found the founders own the vast billions of dollars worth of the equity, right? And so that's a situation where that company needs to restructure its balance sheet. There's just, there's just no way around it. And yet the management team and the founders will do anything to avoid a restructuring because that would wipe out the equity. And so they, they will throw good money after bad all day long, trying to get, you know, trying to turn the ship around, so to speak, when what would be the best thing for the business is to just to restructure right then and there. But that might not happen for a long time. They might run the business into the ground. And the other way around, um, you know, who owns, who owns the debt? You know, they're, especially in a distressed business, uh, you're increasingly seeing larger players forgive portions of their debt in exchange for moving up the capital stack for, in order for, to have a lien on the assets in the event of restructuring. Again, that happened with, with Carvana, where PIMCO and a handful of senior lenders forgave a chunk of debt in order to move up and have a first lien on the business, effectively putting them at the front of the line in terms of getting a recovery in the event of a restructuring, right? So that, and that happened with Chesapeake Energy and a handful of others. So understanding who owns what components of the capital structure is, is and where their incentives are is, is actually pretty darn important, particularly if it gets to the scenario where there's going to be a workout. And then another thing is um, the covenants on the debt itself, right? Is it a, you know, a lot of debt was issued, what we'd call cov light, where it, get, it gives the company, the debtor, a, a lot of flexibility with regards to what they can do with their underlying business and the assets. And so there are, um, there are a handful of bonds that are out there that technically are first lien secured bonds secured by the assets of the business. And yet you've got the management team stripping assets out of the business and selling assets to raise cash in order to fund operations. And when you, when you're doing that, you're definitionally stripping value away from the collateral to the bondholder effectively, which if you had the right docs and the right, the right note structured would, would be illegal, but it's, it's increasingly something we're seeing now with all these cup light docs where, um, you know, we're doing like real estate transactions, like sale leasebacks, for example, uh, which if you had a really tight first lien, uh, note that would never be permissible. And yet you're seeing a lot of collateral being kind of auctioned off and sold in order to keep the, uh, the business afloat and not trigger the default. And that erodes the value of the note itself. So you gotta be really careful about that, that component as well. Just want to comment here. This is one, one of the beautiful things about ETFs is you can actually look inside an ETF on any given day and see what the fund is holding. And I was just looking at the ETF that you're sub-advising for Simplify. And it really is a unique set of different holdings in there. Um, you know, you have the corporate bonds, you have some country debt exposure in there. You have the puts, which like you said, act as a hedge. There's some other ways that you're, I guess, you know, hedging or overlaying the portfolio. So, you know, I certainly encourage people to, if they're listening to this, this episode, you know, go learn about the ETF, um, look at the holdings, see if this might be a strategy that fits inside your portfolio. Cause it's definitely interesting stuff that you're doing there, Joe. Um, just a couple, um, 
quick ones before we end. And these are kind of coming out of the, the strategy space and just getting your thoughts overall as to some of the trends that we're seeing um, in the market and in, in, in our business right now. And the first is, I don't know, have you, are you using chat GPT for anything like productivity wise or in your, your work related function? Not so much using ChatGPT for the the workflow, mm -hmm. although we're certainly leveraging it as a as a business. Um, it's it's you know it's been really helpful from an from an account management standpoint and and also a um, you know a content creation standpoint. Yeah. Um, at some point, I definitely expect to see a lot more kind of AI focused integration within what the processes that we're leveraging now. Um, you know, the, the challenging thing, I think with regards to it, it, investing and in kind of leveraging these models is that you need real-time data, you need access to real-time data and, and it needs to be really high quality data, right? And so depending on what category asset class you're looking at, the, the data sets will be increasingly or, or, or decreasingly dis disjointed effectively, right? I've got a pretty good friend um, that's a data scientist at Citadel and is way more about this than I do. And the stuff that they're doing over there is absolutely, absolutely fascinating, right? I mean, they're, they're pulling, he focuses specifically on energy yeah. and they're pulling satellite imagery and looking at in real time, the productivity of wells. They're looking at, you know, how full are the Walmart parking lots? How full are, you know, these highways and how many tr trucks at any given period of time are on the interstate and, and, and they're ripping data out of, out of publicly available websites and they're amalgamating all of this, all of this data, and then using learning models effectively to, to parse, to parse that out, um, where it's, it's a little bit more difficult is when you're, when you're doing relative, relative value across the capital structure. Um, because, you know, oftentimes you're comparing apples, apples to oranges from like a data standpoint, if that mm. makes sense, right? If I'm, if I'm buying the first lien secured bond of a corporation, and then I'm looking at the equity market cap and on a relative value basis, I think there's something out of whack there. Um, I, I, at least I haven't yet found a systematic approach to maybe ex exploiting that. Whereas if I was looking at, uh, you know, a little bit cleaner of a data set, like, uh, you know, momentum analysis or, um, you know, real time correlations across equities, things like that. I, th I think that that's probably like the first, um, you know, playing field, I suppose. In, mm -hmm. with regards to the introduction of these, these types of processes, but inevitably a technology is going to, you know, make its way, I believe, and kind of replace all of us, <laughs> but, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, I still have a job in, you know, five, 10 years. Well, hopefully they'll, they'll still need someone to sit there and articulate the strategy and talk to other humans about it. There unless we get replaced with <laughs> AI there too. Um, so, all right, well, this has been, this has been great, Joe. We really appreciate it. We always like to end these episodes with sort of a standard closing question. And that is, if you could teach one lesson to the average investor based on your experience in the markets, what would that be? Oh boy. Um, 
I would, I would probably say the, the most valuable lesson, I mean, there's tons of them, but the, I think the most valuable lesson is, is usually just to stay the course. All right. If you've, um, you know, we as, as human beings have a tendency to knee jerk react to things. And particularly if it's kind of a scary or an emotional catalyst and, you know, if, if, you know, as a individual investor or as a manager, if we've spent a lot of time and, and thought constructing a mousetrap or a strategy in a, in a particular way, uh, then ideally that strategy holds up in periods of, of kind of shock if you will. And more times than not, I think people let their impulse, impulse construct that you had already put together previously. And when you get these times, these kind of big catalysts or these kind of scary events, a lot of folks, you know, they'll hit the sell button or they'll raise cash or they'll, they'll do something that is emotional rather than kind of rationally thought out. And, um, you know, the, boy is there's it's actually my dad says it all the time but he says you know more more often than not the right thing to do is absolutely nothing <laughs> you know if you've if you've already built the strategy you're a long-term investor you know there's going to be bumps in the road and more often than not you're, the best thing you can do is just kind of sit on your hands and let the strategy that you've constructed play itself out um a lot of people try to get cute you know something will happen they'll say oh and they'll go in there and start day trading or or they're, you know, they'll, they'll pull the ripcord and sell out completely. And with the benefit of hindsight, that's usually a mistake. I'd say just, you know, stick to your guns, stay the course, you know, try to be thoughtful about the approach. Well, that, that's a sound piece of uh, advice for sure. We agree with that. Um, if people want to learn more about you, follow you, um, get access to, you know, information on uh, the various strategies you run and where can they go to learn more? Uh, so we, as a firm, uh, have a website, asterizoacapital.com. Um, our partners are Simplify ETFs, our, our um, ETF uh, credit, CRDT. It's got its own website. And um, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. And um, I'm not really a very avid Twitter user, although I'm, I'm starting, to, starting to spool it up. Nice. Well, we'll definitely put links to of the site and and stuff in there so so thank you very much joe we really appreciate it good luck with the fun thanks so much for having me appreciate it thanks for your time this is justin again thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns you can follow jack on twitter at at practical quant and follow me on twitter at at jj carboneau if you found this discussion interesting and valuable please subscribe in either itunes or on youtube or leave a review or a comment we appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.